0: Let's pray. God, I want to thank you for your word. God, I want to thank you that you've caused your word to be written. I want to thank you that um, we can grow in it, that we can wrestle with it. We can learn from it. We can apply it. Um, God, I pray that you would give us a heart to love it. I pray that you would give us a hunger for it. And that we would um, do all that we can do to put it in practice. And so this morning, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, my rock and my redeemer. Amen. All right, John chapter 4, we're talking about Jesus and his little uh, get-together with this woman at the well. And now, he, there's Jesus all by himself, and there's this woman all by, himself, all by herself, and she and he are having this conversation. And, and Jesus is breaking all kinds of cultural boundaries, and, and he is just breaking decorum. But it seems to me, as, as I look at the life of Jesus, he's really not too concerned with cultural norms that really are just, dumb. And, and so he just kind of pushes against those a little bit. And so he's having this conversation with this woman at the well and, and she, and, and there, I mean, he's talking about some deep stuff. He's like eternal life and living water. And it's going to like spring up from you. And she's like, huh? And she's missing it. She's not quite getting a hold of, of what Jesus is trying to tell her. So we're going to pick up the dialogue in verse 15 of chapter four, and we're going to see what's going on. So, so actually 13 and 14, he says, I'm just going to read this so it gives us a place to to go from. Jesus answered, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But those who drink the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up to eternal life. And this is what the woman says. Sir, give me this water so that I won't go thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. Now, it almost seems like she's a little sarcastic. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking that it's, it's almost like she, she's sitting there, and, and she she just starts her day, and she gets up, and and she's just she goes to the well to get water, and there's this dude sitting there, and this guy's like, "Hey, give me a drink," and she's like, "Huh? You're a Jew, I'm a Samaritan. What are you talking to me for?" And then and then this then this guy he's like, "Oh, if you only knew the gift of God. If you only knew who I was, you would be asking me for water." And and she's like. What, what, what is, what is going on here? I mean, I mean, wouldn't it be like, wouldn't it be like you standing in line at stop and shop and you're standing in line, right? And you're in the self-checkout and you're just you beep, beep. And there's this dude standing at the end. He doesn't work there because he doesn't have the schmock on. And you're just like, beep. He goes, give me something to eat. And you're like, excuse me. He goes, oh, if you only knew who I was. If you knew the gift of God you would ask me for something and I would give you the bread of life. You be, I mean, how would you react? You'd be like, mm-hmm, security, <laughs> right? I, I mean, so here's this poor woman and we think, oh, she's just not, you know, we know it's Jesus. I mean, we got the story. We got the whole book. We got everything from start to finish. She has no idea who this guy is and he's all, you know, I'll give you living water. So, so I, I think we give her a hard time a little bit, but I don't think that, that she's too far off from how we would react or respond to this whole situation. So, So there she is, and and she says to him, all right, well, well, give me some of this water so I don't have to come back here, and I don't have to get something to drink like all the time. You see, she continues to miss the point. She continues maybe even to be a little sarcastic with this guy. She wants some of this water. That's not going to let her be thirsty anymore. But she's also focused on herself. She is focused on her own personal sense of convenience. She wants life to be much easier than what it is now. She is coming midday in the heat to get water probably every day. And it sounds like a really good idea if she doesn't have to come here anymore. And she is hoping that this guy is going to produce water that she doesn't have to come back for. She is focused on her, her own personal convenience herself. Now last week we looked at this, this idea that about that sometimes we just get so wound up in ourselves. We miss what God wants to say to us. We miss what God wants to do in our lives. We miss what, what God is, is showing us. And so, and so even, even for this, I mean, if let's, let's take this a little bit farther now, isn't it sometimes our relationship with God, all the God stuff that we do, isn't it, isn't it sometimes that we go through this journey of faith thinking that it's for our own personal convenience, that our relationship with God is all about us and making my life better and making things easier for me. And hey, you know, if he wants to make things easier for you, that's cool. But me first, you all get the leftovers. I mean, we all wrestle with this idea. And, and we want God to meet our needs and our desires. And I would argue most of our needs are probably desires anyway. And we want them to answer our prayers exactly the way that we expect them to be answered in the time frame that I have set forth. And God almost becomes for us this this Mr. Fix-It. Now, I have to be careful here because God is in the business of fixing things. God is in the business of restoring things and reconciling things and bringing things back together and putting them whole again. But what happens is, we get all prideful and arrogant and we want it done when we want it done in the way we want it done when we want it done. And so our faith becomes this this personal faith of convenience for us. And, and what about those people who who they want nothing to do with God? And and they go through life, they don't engage faith at all, and they don't engage uh, uh, Jesus at all. And then something goes wrong in their life, and like bam, where's God? What? How can he let this happen? And they get angry with God because they don't answer. He doesn't answer their prayers the way that he uh, they expect him to. See, I believe that that they don't have a clear understanding of of who he really is. I mean, I've been at this a while now, and I'm still learning and discerning who God really is and what it means to journey with God. But here's one thing I will tell you. Here's one thing I know for sure. God is not our God of our personal convenience. Turn to 2 Corinthians 11 for, with me. Um, there's this guy, Paul, in the Bible, right? He writes a lot of it. I'm sure he's got good copyright laws. And so he's a heavy hitter. And uh I mean, this, this dude, like, he's, he's on this road and, and Jesus appears to him. He, like, falls off the donkey and God glues his eyes shut. And he's, I mean, this is, this is like, this is a conversion experience this guy has. And he goes and he just preaches everywhere. This guy, he's like a warrior for God. He is the dude through all the ages that has taught more people about Christ through his writings than I think anyone. And listen to Listen to Paul's experience. I'm going to start reading in verse 23. Are they servants of Christ? I am out of my mind to talk like this. I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the forty lashes minus one. Oh, thank you. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was pelted with stones. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. I have been constantly on the move. I've been in danger from rivers, danger from bandits, and danger from my own people, and danger from Gentiles, and danger in the city in danger in the country, in danger at the sea, and in danger from false believers. I have labored and toiled and have often gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. Besides everything else, I face the daily pressure of my concern for all the churches. Okay, that is not a life of convenience, okay? Anybody been shipwrecked? Bobbling in the sea for a day. How about a couple lashes? 40 minus one because they were generous. See, I do not believe for a minute that God's purpose in our life is that we would live a life of convenience. God's purpose is to give us this gift of eternal life. And in turn, we're to take that gift out and give it away. It's to be shared. It is not ours to keep. He wants us to give it away. And I would say that that if you're not giving the gift of God away, it might be proof. It might be proof that you have yet to receive it. The woman said to him, sir, give me this water so I won't get thirsty and have to keep coming here to draw water. He told her, go call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Interesting. Interesting. Jesus says, go call your husband, which, which is really kind of this, this random thought. It, it doesn't like, uh, it doesn't quite, I'm trying to have a, I have a hard time figuring out where it fits and scholars kind of argue over it. Well, it's supposed to be here. Maybe this was at it. It doesn't matter. It's, it's, it's the word of God for us. And we're going to look into it. And so, and so he says, go call your husband. And she goes, I don't have a husband and she is quick to respond. And I think in part, because she doesn't want to go there. She she wants to change the subject really, really quick. And she's like, I don't have a husband. But Jesus' response to her, at best, is devastating. Listen to what he says. Jesus told her, you're right when you say you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands. And the man that you now have is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. Jesus begins to Bring her life out into the open, I mean he calls her right out listen you you've you 're right you don 't have a husband in fact you 've been divorced five times, and the guy you 're living with now he 's not your husband and and it's it's it, we like to get a hold of this and say jesus man he 's just like pointing out her sin, look at her i mean he 's just like, whoa, well, bam, look at you now, woman, but you have to remember that in, in the Mosaic law, divorce was was acceptable. Now, it wasn't God's plan. We know the teaching that Jesus would give on divorce. But in the Mosaic law, Moses allowed men to divorce their wives. If they found something in them that they didn't like. And it really got really strange. Like, if, I mean, there's cases where if they didn't cook well, if they didn't clean well, they could just make up stuff and divorce their wife. Holla. No, I'm okay. Uh, so So... <laughs> Um, So so we understand what Jesus' teaching is. But for this woman, it's okay that that she's been divorced. Now, Malachi will see that God hates divorce. He hates it. But in Jeremiah, it says that God has given a certificate of divorce to Israel because of her adultery. Regardless, God doesn't like divorce. It wasn't part of his original plan. Okay? But, But I don't believe Jesus is just like thumping on this woman. He's like, he, he's, he's going, listen, listen to me. Your life right now is really out of harmony. Your your Things are not going well for you right now. And remember, I, I mean, I can't imagine that being divorced five times is easy. I, people have gone through it once, and it's devastating. Five times this woman has been divorced. And remember this. But the only consistent thing in all your failed relationships is you. And so this woman, (laughs) this woman, her life, there's something not right in it. There's something going wrong in it. And he is pointing it out to her not to make her feel bad. He's not giving her the big L on the forehead. Leaves her. No, he, the words that Jesus has for her can restore her, can bring her back to reconciling with, with, with God and with her life and to walk in harmony and rhythm again. This is why Jesus is calling her out. He has a deep concern that she would live life and live it abundantly. So let's bring this into church, 2009. See, I believe that it's okay for us to go to people and to, and to um, ask them, what are you doing? I mean, to go to people and say, man, you're making decisions that, that they're just not good decisions. And you are traveling down a wrong road. Man, your life is way, way out of whack, way out of rhythm." And you need to take a look at that. And it doesn't come from a place of arrogance. It doesn't come from a place of pride. It comes from a concern that a brother or a sister is making wrong choices and you're worried about them. And this is Jesus' heart right here. We do it because we love each other. Now, I wouldn't pull at Jesus. Like, just go up to somebody and say, yeah, man, your life is terrible unless God really, really told you to do that. Like you woke up and there was a tablet at the foot of your bed and you walked out in the yard and the burning bush was there and then you you went somewhere and you drove by the reservoir and it was split and people were walking through. Okay, maybe then, I mean, imagine standing in the post office and just turning around to the lady behind you and go, your life is in the toilet. I mean, your kids are bad, you're bad, your husband dresses funny, you just need to read No, no, see, see, this is coming. We we do it from a place within the context of community. From a place of relationship with each other. People that we know, people that we're doing life together. It's okay to go to them and say, Man, what, what are you doing? We all have People from time to time in our lives that make bad choices. I bet you, we all, from time to time, have made bad choices. And I wonder how far it would have gotten, or I wonder how soon it may have stopped if somebody came up to you with love and concern in their heart and said, "What are you doing?" No, no, see, you're, this is not going to end well for you. This is what Jesus is doing. Let me tell you what this is not. This is not you being the morality police. This is not you nitpicking somebody. Oh, you said a bad word. Mm-hmm. You said heck, and heck really means hell. And you didn't use it in the context of eternal damnation. So, whoa, you are wrong. I just said that in church, huh? Sorry. Um, so, this is not about that. This is not about you looking at somebody and scrutinizing everything that they're doing, and they're doing it wrong, and they're hypocrites. This is about a concern for somebody's life that they're making the wrong choices. This is about you in love going to somebody. Now, listen, if, if, if you're a nitpicker, if you're always looking at what other people are doing and, you know, they're not living like they should, they're not being good Christians, well, for, there's a few things going on, I think. First of all, you're just kind of being a jerk, okay? Let's just get it right out there. Um, second off, who are you to judge that in somebody's life? Listen, you don't have to have it all together to go to brother and sister and do this, but who are you to nitpick over every little thing? And I would say that if you are doing that, you're doing it from a place of arrogance and pride. And if you are doing that, there's probably something in your life that you just hate and you're taking it out on somebody else. But for brothers and sisters in Christ to go to each other in a place of relationship, in a, in a sense of community, and say, what are you doing? It's not good. This doesn't happen all the time. It's not every week unless they're doing the same thing. This is out of a genuine love and concern. A, a few years ago when I was um, at my the old church, um, I sat down with a, with a guy who I've known for all over 13 years now. And um, he, he's an older guy. He's my senior by 30 years. He's, he used to be an atheist, and now he's a devout follower of Jesus for a long time. And I sat down with him once, and I said, what do you see in me that's not making me a good pastor? That's a really hard question to ask somebody. I mean, really hard. And I expected absolutely nothing, Dennis. You're just like, whoa, <laughs> not so much. And, and so I asked him and he thought for a minute and he goes, well, since you asked, I'm, I'm going to tell you the one thing I do see. And he told me something. And as hard as that question was to ask, it was even harder to hear what he had to say. But he said it from a place of love, and concern that he wanted the best for me. And, and he was right. He was absolutely right. And I had to receive it. And I had, to, I had to make some changes in my own life. I had to apologize to some people. It's not easy. But I believe that we can get, if we can get a hold of this, if we can be open to hearing things like that, and if we can be open to sharing things with other people that we're doing life with, it will make us stronger people. It will make us stronger to engage this journey of faith that we're on. We will. This is part of our sanctification process, becoming more like Jesus. It's not always easy. Jesus never said it would be easy. But he did say it would be worth it. Here's a good standard to go by. If you just feel that you want to talk to somebody, have a conversation with them, and you're really broken, you're really hurt for them, you're really concerned, then I would say go and speak to them. But if your thought is, you know what, they're not, they're not Christians. They're hypocrites. Look at the way they're living their life. I would say don't do it because you are coming from a place of pride and arrogance. Your words should bring life always your words should build up people understanding that sometimes things got to get knocked down before they get built up but our words words should always bring life jesus words are going to bring this woman life sir the woman said i can see that you are a prophet Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place we must worship is in Jerusalem. Jesus now has gotten her attention. Now, finally, she, she's making a little connection here that maybe this guy has got a little something, something going on here. He just told me stuff that people shouldn't, People don't know, just strangers don't know. Now, now, I believe that she is actually making an inroad to, become, to recognize that Jesus is the Messiah because a Samaritan... A Samaritan believed that all prophets stopped with Moses. Remember, they only looked at the first five books of the Hebrew Bible as sacred text. And so all the prophets, all the Psalms, they did not consider sacred. And so what they hold on to is Deuteronomy 18, 18, where God says, I'm going to raise a prophet from your people. I'm going to put his words, my words into his mouth. He's going to speak what I have to say. And so she recognizes him as a prophet. And she asked a question. Well, you Jews say that, that, that you should, we should worship there. And we Samaritans say, you know, we, we should worship here. This is an age-old question. This is a big controversy between the Jews and the Samaritans. She may, be, she may really be interested in this. What would the prophet have to say about where it is that we're to worship? The Jews said... Jerusalem, the Samaritans worshiped on their mountain in their temple. They didn't share temples. The Jews said, no, 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 only worship. here. This is it. It's only here. Samaritans, uh-uh, we're over here. And so she asked this question. Or maybe she's trying to redirect the conversation again to avoid what Jesus is trying to get at. <laughs> Oh, do we Christians love to avoid? You know, when God says, hello, you're like, "Mm mm-mm, ain't me. I ain't doing it. wasn't me, God. And he's tapping, and he's kicking, and he's prodding. You're like, "Mm mm-mm, and you're ignoring. We love to avoid. You know, sometimes our avoidance, sometimes our arguing with God, we call it prayer. (laughs) Okay, think about this. As a pastor, I've asked many people over the years, I've seen something in them and I say, will you consider doing this? Would you consider this ministry? Would you consider serving here? And many people say, well, I need to pray on that. And they should. You should pray about that. And within a day or so, a week or so maybe, they get back to me like either, well, you know, I just, I just don't think God is calling me there. Or, yeah, let's, let's get this. Let's, let's do this. But there's those people, and I bet you we all that have been there at one point. There are those people who two months later, they're like, mm-mm, still praying on it. Two months? For real? I mean, okay, here's my theory. If you go to God and you say, God, should I do this? And you've prayed for, I'll give you 10 days. And if you don't have an answer yet, you're arguing with God. Either he said no and you want to, or he said go and you're like, "Uh uh-uh. And so we love to avoid God. We love to push back to God. I mean, look at David. David, like the story of David, I love the story of David. He goes, God, should I go beat those people? God's like, yep, go ahead. I mean, it's like the next verse. Boom. Or or what about Jonathan? Jonathan's like, let's just give it a shot. See what happens. It wasn't even a prayer in there. He has no ideas. I'll see if God shows up. We loved. I digress. I'm sorry. Let's go. John 21. I'm sorry. Woman, Jesus replied, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the father, neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know. For salvation is from the Jews. Jesus will not be taken in, be sucked in to this century-old argument. In fact, Jesus is now going to put it to rest. Jesus is going to end the argument right here and right now. And he's going to speak into this woman the truth of God. See, he is concerned about worship. He's concerned about how God is worshipped. He's concerned the nature of worship. And he says, listen, there's a time and there's a place, there's a time that's coming when place won't matter. It won't matter where you worship. Whether here or there. You see, understand that in Jerusalem, the temple was, was tradition and it was ritual and it was it was a religious center and for the samaritans they had their temple and it was tradition and it was and it was ritual and it was their their religious center and it is all based upon their religion and it was exclusive and Jesus is telling this woman listen there's going to be a time when religion will no longer control how god is worshiped there's coming a time where place doesn't matter, where song choice doesn't matter, where if you lift your hands, it doesn't matter. And he's going to teach this woman what matters. See, there's something new on the horizon that's coming. Jesus is inaugurating a new way to worship. And he says, he says you Samaritans, you worship God and that's good, but, but you, you don't even really know what you're worshiping. We Jews, we, we know what we're worshiping. And even so, things are about to change. He says that salvation is from the Jews. Now understand, this is not you have to be Jewish to know salvation. This is saying that salvation is coming from the Jewish nation. Let me let, me, let, me, uh, let you in on a little secret here. I know this might sound heretical, but here it goes. Jesus is Jewish. Jewish. Okay, so, so let's, let's continue this thought process. That means Jesus isn't Christian. <gasps> I know. No eggs, please. Emails Monday morning. Thank you. Salvation comes from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For they're the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit. And his worshipers must worship in spirit and in truth. There's a time that's coming and that is now. It has this meaning in the Greek that there's a crisis brewing, that something is changing, that something new is going to take place. God is going to reveal himself and is revealing himself in new ways, and that new way is Jesus Christ. Jesus, again, is inaugurating this new way of worship that is not tied to structure, it's not tied to tradition, it's tied to the Spirit And it's tied to truth. Now, I believe that the spirit that Jesus is talking about here is the spirit of God, that that spirit, when it renews us inside, allows us to recognize God for who he is, recognize the movement of God in our life and begin to worship him. The empowerment of the spirit that changes us. What do we call it? Wait for it. Come on, work it born. uh, That was poor, sad. The spirit of God within our own spirit regenerates us and allows us worship. You cannot worship God unless you have been regenerated by the spirit of God, your soul. You have been born again. You've been born from above. This is who God is. And so God changes us. and He initiates this change deep within us. The Spirit of God. But see, John doesn't just write on the surface. I believe that that we can take his words and go even deeper. Because I believe that Jesus can also be talking about our human spirit. That we have to worship from our spirit. See, true worship is not just some outward appearance. It's not being in the correct place. It's not doing the correct things. It's not singing the correct songs. But it comes from a place deep within us. It goes beyond our attitude. It's the condition of our spirit how it's, that it's been affected by the very spirit of God. Now, the Greek word for, for, um, for spirit is the word pneuma. It's the same word, or it's not the same word, but it would be in Hebrew. It's ruach, and and they both have this meaning of a movement of air or wind. Okay, Uh, when the Spirit of God hovered above the waters, it's ruach hakodesh, and and in here in the Greek is, is spirit, but it also means that place for from which we feel. And we think, and we have desire, and, the, and, and we decide. So our spirit is that thing that's deep down within us. It's at our core. It's at our very essence who we are. This is the spirit. And so, and so this goes, worshiping God in spirit goes way beyond Sunday morning. Worshiping God in the spirit goes way beyond singing songs. It goes way beyond church world. I mean, they're a part of it, but worshiping God in the spirit is how we live our life how the spirit of god has affected change in our own spirit and what we do in our daily lives becomes worship to god how we live now to worship the idea of worship the word to worship means to to hold in reverence or awe it's about being in wow of god it's about knowing where you are in the pecking order it's about knowing that god is amazing and he's great and we're not and so there's this humility there's this submission to him in our very spirit and that's reflected in our very lives and so yes Jesus says, worship in the spirit, that the spirit of God will come and change you. But it changes our spirit, and we worship our lives become our spiritual act of worship. And do you see how this, we we call it the worship team, and we say we begin with worship. I'm going to tell you that, you know, song has very little to do with worship. It's our life at our very core that is about worship. And Jesus says, worship in spirit and worship in truth. Now, I got I to be honest with you, man. I wrestled with this idea of truth for many moons um, over this past week. I just, it, I just, it didn't click. I mean, I, I was just having a hard time getting a hold of this. Truth for the ancients that, that wrote the Bible, it means the same thing it means for us. It means, it means you know, truth as opposed to being false, okay? True, false. But for them, it also has this meaning of of faithfulness and reliability and trustworthiness and all of these things, integrity. And and so, and so truth is characteristic of God. Now, now I hope I'm not going to lose you because I lost myself, you know, four times this week on it. So, truth is characteristic of God, and we only know truth as we know God. Are you tracking with that? So, so. Truth is characteristic of God. God is truth, and so we only know truth as we know God. God reveals himself to us, and so God reveals his truth to us. And that revelation becomes it's 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 weighed by the integrity and the reliability of who God is. So for Jesus, truth is not something that Jesus practices. Truth, Jesus is not truthful. I mean, he is truthful, but he's not, he doesn't try to be truthful. Jesus is the revelation of God. And so Jesus is truth. You tracking. Have I lost you? I got a lot of glazed looks. I don't know if it's hot or what. Am I sweating a little bit? Okay, so, so, so Jesus is truth. Now, I, I, I get the sense out of God's, John's gospel that, that um, God's reality is really the only true reality that there is. And so truth becomes not some teaching about God. Truth is God revealing himself to us. Truth is about us engaging and becoming a disciple of the revelation of God who is Jesus. John chapter 8, I think. Jesus says this If you hold on to my teaching, if you become my disciple, if you hold on to my teaching, you are really my disciple. Then you will know the truth and the truth will set you free and so to worship in truth is about becoming a disciple of Jesus now here's some of the, something that i really worry about Jesus says this, that we are to hold on to his teachings. That means that we're supposed to engage the things that Jesus taught. That means our life should look like, try to mirror as best we humanly can, how Jesus lived his life. And so within that, I worry that many times people come to church and they sit in church and they think they're good. And they raise their hands and they sing the songs and they leave. And their life looks nothing like the life that Jesus has called them to. And they think they're okay because they did their time, they worshiped they they were able, they wrote the check, they raised the hand, they sang the song they 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 shook the hands and 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 they gave hugs, and they said an amen and 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 That's a dangerous place to be because to worship in spirit and to worship in truth is God affecting by his spirit, our very spirit, making a change, and our life begins to look like the life of Jesus. This is what true worship is. This is what God is looking for in his people. He can care less about the bald worship leader who some weeks gets it right on the guitar and other weeks doesn't. He can care less about how many times you lift your hands or if you go both hands up. He wants, unless that comes from a place of deep reverence and awe for who God is all throughout your week. And so church, let me tell you that no longer is the old mechanical way of worship acceptable to God. But our very lives, how we live every day, how, how, how we're dads and how we're moms and how we're sons and how we're daughters and how we're employers and how we're employees and how we're friends. These are the things that become an act of worship. These are the things that God is looking for that we more and more every day would become like Jesus. Let's pray.